Trust building, collaborating, extremely important. You're working with a diverse group of people. The more you can bring the best out of them, the more successful the project you're going to have. Hi, I'm Natasha Tony, and you're listening to Narrative Shift. I'm so excited to share my next guest with you. Along with having a multi-decade career in the entertainment industry, one that spans genres between the big and small screens, he's also a dear friend of mine. Right now, Donald L. Sparks spends his days working as an assistant director on projects I'm sure you've heard of, like the sci-fi thriller Blade Runner 2049, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, as well as Jeff Nichols' movie The Bike Riders. Don also sits on the Directors Guild of America's National Board, where he's in good company with directors Ron Howard and Steven Spielberg. But he's been surrounded by the film and TV industry all his life, having grown up just outside of Hollywood and worked in a handful of roles on set before landing on a career as an assistant director. Here's my conversation with Don. What would you like us to know about you? Well, in the context of being a first assistant director, I'm a 30-plus year member of the Directors Guild of America. I sit on the DGA UPM AD Council. I'm also on the National Board for the Guild. So that's me in a nutshell as far as my work is concerned. And in terms of the personal life, I'm a husband, a father, a brother, a cousin, a nephew. You know, I have a very big family, very dynamic people that I spend time with, kind of the cornerstone of who I am. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Pomona. It was considered a very far away from L.A. at that time when we grew up there, but it's actually all of 30 minutes from downtown. I'm one of the few California natives. I was actually born and raised in Los Angeles, so people are always surprised to meet me because they don't always get to meet people who are actually born and raised in L.A. That's the same, actually, for Vancouver. Really? I, yeah, I have the birth certificate to say I was born here as well. Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Yeah. But tell us a little bit about growing up. I think you are a 60s kid. I'm a Gen Xer. Would you call yourself a Gen Xer? Or? I, it's interesting because I often get grouped into the baby boom, but considering the baby boom was 46 through 64, I don't really have anything in common that with, with people who were born in 1946. So I often refer to myself as the lost generation because at the time that I grew up, things were happening around me, but I was too young to either fully understand the cultural and social significance of certain things. You know, obviously I was too young to enjoy or participate in the sexual revolution. I was too young to be drafted into the Vietnam War, even though I saw my older brother's friends get drafted and serve. I was surrounded by culturally significant things, but I wasn't really a part of them. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, actually, even when we think about how we've been shaped. You bring up Vietnam War. My dad enlisted as a young man and came up this way to Canada, and that's how my parents met. But really kind of thinking about civil rights, that understanding of going back in time and how that did shape or didn't shape. And I think that also music is a, a big part of 
what I would say has shaped me, and I think that's something that we've had lots of conversation about music and that era. And, oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was a generation, the Motown generation, listening to The Temptations and Marvin Gaye, Aretha Franklin, you know, my parents were big and they loved music. There was always music playing in the house. And I'll add to that that I lived in a neighborhood with a lot of children. And I was on the younger side of all of the kids. So having an older brother and older boys in the neighborhood, I got to be kind of an observer. I got to see the dynamics, the social dynamics of how the older boys played and how they interacted and how they competed. I didn't have the pressure of having to perform. It was easier for me to be able to observe what was going on in order to learn those social dynamics. And where, you know, emphasis was placed on certain things, everyone always admired the athletes. Everyone always admired the smart older boys, you know, and girls, you know, the kids who were good and academics. So I was able to kind of create my identity within that because it was very important to me that people responded to me in a Mm. positive way. And when I saw the way they responded to, in particular, there was one kid in our neighborhood, his name was Ralph Dudley. Ralph was a super athlete, but he was also the first kid in our neighborhood to go to college. Okay. And I remember the buzz that went through our neighborhood about Ralph Dudley going to college. Plus, he went to Whittier College, which is a, a highly respected academic institution in California. And it made a huge impact on me because I said to myself, I want people to regard me mm. that same way. I want I want to see people smile, you know, when they talk about me. And, you know, it was interesting because our neighborhood kind of claimed his accomplishment as our accomplishment. I think I'm curious about who raised you. And you've talked a little bit about your brother, but also there were probably some parents involved there too. Yeah, I was raised primarily by my mom. She and my father divorced when I was probably about two years old lived in separate cities once they separated. So my mom was the cornerstone. Obviously, uh, she raised myself, my older brother, my younger sister. And the thing that I think I realized the most about my mom was just how steady and dedicated she was to raising us. She made a lot of sacrifices, obviously, things that she went without so that we could have. She was very encouraging, extremely loving. My mom had this magical thing about her where she made everybody feel as if they were the most important person in the world. When my mom passed, one of the things that tickled me the most was as all of my cousins and friends came to the microphone to speak about my mom, they all claimed I was her favorite, (laughs) which was very funny to me because it was a position they all fought for. But it was the reality of who my mom was. She just had, you know, this big heart and she opened the door for anyone that needed it. She was a great confidant. She was a great supporter of me growing up, my brother and sister. My relationship with my father was a little bit different, obviously, because we were detached. He was out of the household. And most of my relationship with my dad kind of became sort of event-based. You know, we'd spend summers together. We'd go to ball games together. We'd go camping together. So we always had those sort of significant 
milestones of doing these things, but it wasn't necessarily the day-to-day. You know, my brother who had dyslexia and had somewhat of a learning disability that wasn't understood a lot back then, but my mother really had to dig in and find a way for my brother to become educated and to overcome those learning issues. Those were the two people, in addition to a lot of men in our community who really stepped up to mentor me, Mm -hmm. whether they were our baseball coach, our Cub Scout leader. There was a a very strong sense of community where I grew up, and there were a lot of people that stepped in and really helped shape me as a young man growing up. Was there anybody in showbiz, or was that something that you found on your own? Nobody in showbiz. As a matter of fact, the closest I think I ever came to showbiz was my mom was a dispatcher at LAPD, Los Angeles Police Department, and Jack Webb, who produced the TV show Adam-12 and Dragnet, actually went down to the LAPD basement where all the dispatchers were, and they recorded my mom's voice as one of the dispatchers for background sounds on the One Adam-12 TV series. And as a result, he gave us free passes to Universal Studios (laughs) and a membership to the Jack Webb Fan Club. And that was about as close as I had gotten to the entertainment industry growing up. Oh, that's a fun story, though. Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty funny, actually, when you think about it. As an assistant director, what is it that you do? There's so many different ways to describe the work that I do. In the technical sense, you could say I'm in charge of logistics. That's a very broad brush. It doesn't really paint a clear picture. You can say sometimes I'm the straw that stirs the drink because there's so many different ingredients that go into making a motion picture. We always have certain parameters that we work in. The producer, the studio will tell us how many days we can shoot, how much money we have. And within that, it's my responsibility and focus on maximizing those days, making them as efficient as possible, making sure that everybody understands what our goals are, what our needs are, and setting the tone so that we can come in on a day-to-day basis and accomplish the work that we set out to accomplish. And and for the things that fall by the wayside, keeping track of those so that we can go back and either pick them up or find another way to get them done. But it's really about being, you know, the central focus of communication within the film crew and making sure that everybody understands what our goals are, what the requirements are, and, you know, getting us across the finish line. Can you share how you started in film? Absolutely. It was kind of a securitist route. I studied marketing in college, went to the University of Arizona, got a job at an ad agency through an internship that I did there. That led to a job at a television station, which then led to a job in post-production. This happened in the 80s when MTV came out and the Comedy Channel, and there was more content needed, and it allowed more people to get into production. So as I was working in post-production, one of the directors that I work with, who was very prominent in the music video directing, I started working as his post-production supervisor, and one day he took me to lunch, and he said, Don, if you ever think about it, I think you'd be a really good AD. I had never considered that as a career choice, but when this director, his name was Jerry Kramer, told me that, I started to investigate it a little bit more, and I ended up leaving Jerry's company and working somewhere else, and 
I was at the other company. I was at Lorimar for two months, and Warner Brothers came in and bought us. And Warner Brothers essentially wanted the Lorimar Library, wanted the post-production facility that they own, but they didn't necessarily want the people. Okay. <laughs> so I called Jerry up, and I said, hey, do you really think I'd be a good AD? And he said, yeah, absolutely. I go, good. I'm getting laid off in two months. And he said, call me when you get laid off. And I got laid off March 31st and April 11th. Two weeks later, I was working on a project as a second AD that Jerry was directing and producing. A music video? It was actually, they were building Universal Studios, Orlando, Florida. Mm. And there was an attraction there called the Fantastic World of Hanna-Barbera, where you would go through an animation studio and they would show you how animation is done back then. Painting cells, all of those things. And we were creating the video content to go along with that ride, and that was the first project that I worked on. And I just continued to grow into it, going from music videos, commercials, industrials, into feature films. And can you talk a little bit about some of your favorite projects that you've worked on? I've been very fortunate to work with some very talented filmmakers. You know, I've learned something on every project that I've done. Every project is unique. You work with a unique group of people. You work under a unique group of circumstances. I've worked all around the world, Mexico, Budapest. I've worked in Cuba. And for me, the journey of being an assistant director is constantly learning. You know, every project, again, has different dynamics. You're going to work with a different director. You're going to have a different director of photography. So for me, it's getting in with my team and figuring out the best way to maximize everybody's talents. So each project offers me that. You know, I can learn something new from this director. I can learn something new by living in Budapest, Hungary for nine months. I can learn something new by being in Cuba for six weeks. This allows me to continue to grow professionally and individually, just as I continue this journey as an assistant director. So let's talk about a couple learnings then. Do you have any of those stories where you've had those learning moments? I'm primarily an observer. Mm -hmm. I worked as a second AD for eight years. And across that eight years, before I moved up to become a uh, first AD, I got to observe a lot. I, I worked with a lot of different first ADs. I saw the way that the crews responded to them. I saw what their strengths were. I saw what their weaknesses were. And all of those things were things that I took as part of my learning. The ultimate goal of being a first AD is to create a cohesion within your crew to get the best out of everybody. And being able to observe the way that crews responded to certain AD styles allowed me to create my style in a way that was always in a positive manner of treating the crew giving them the information that they need, interacting with the crew in a way that, you know, it was never about me as the first AD. It was always about what our higher goal is. What is it we're here to accomplish? This is the director's vision. Let's get on board. Let's find a way to, you know, realize the director's vision. So there weren't a lot of mistakes along the way for me. There were small mechanical mm -hmm. mistakes, typos on the call sheet, sometimes not being patient because you 
were so fast to want to accomplish something that maybe you missed something. But there was never anything catastrophic that, oh, my God, I did not plan for this. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Because some of your work, too, you know, when we talk about safety and set. And so I'm thinking of one film in particular, Sicario. Lots of blowing things up. Lots of blowing things up. Lots of gunfire, bullet hits, squibs, you know, all of those things. And yeah, there's a certain amount of safety and inherent risk that goes into a lot of the work that we do, whether it's driving cars or staging fight scenes or working with pyrotechnics or whatever the case may be. And for me, again, that's where I lean into my crew members. On Sicario in particular, we had a special effects coordinator who was very experienced, and that's what his primary role was to plan these explosions, to plan the gun hits, the bullet hits, all of those things. So by leaning into his experience and his knowledge base, I was able to extract things from him and put myself in a position to get us through the day safely. So it's really educating myself via someone else's experience. Mm-hmm. I've never handled debt cord. I've never handled any sort of pyrotechnics sure. in the first place myself. But this guy, that's all he does. So that's how I was able to approach most of what I do. I've never done anybody's hair or makeup. You Yet. Know? So, Yet. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, I lean into my hair and makeup department. How long do you need? What is it we're trying to accomplish? If there's multiple hairstyles on a day, it may be better for me to shoot in a certain order so that the hairstylist and the makeup team can get through the day efficiently as opposed to having to undo something and redo something. So it's the interaction that I have with my department heads who are also leaders on the crew and getting that information from them and working collaboratively with them so that we can achieve the best outcome. So you do know a lot about all the other departments and what people are needing to accomplish that collaborative goal that you all have together. And I think that there's something that often when I'm working with directors and producers and talking about their leadership style and leading inclusively, that often we are talking about collaboration, trust building, communication is another one. And just thinking about that and building those relationships. And I think that, you know, you talked about your mom that she would be able to make everybody her favorite and have them feel that way. And you've also talked about bringing the best out of people. Can you talk about the trust building and collaboration and kind of those relationships and how important that is in the work that you do? That trust building, collaborating, extremely important. You're working with a diverse group of people. Everybody brings a skill and an expertise to the table with them whether they're a craftsman or an artisan or a technician. And for me, it's always about making sure I have an open line of communication with them to collaborate with them in terms of their concerns, their needs, how much time may be involved with something that I'm asking them to do. 
you're already working with a highly motivated group of people. Most people that work in film are highly motivated. And the more you can bring the best out of them and get them to vest themselves in the project, the more successful the project you're going to have. Building that relationship with them can be just as simple as listening to their concerns. I can't always solve someone's problems or issues for them. And sometimes they don't necessarily want me to solve their problems. Maybe they just want me to hear their voices. So being able to take the time to hear people's voices, hear their concerns, make them a part of the process makes the collaboration truly flower. And then in terms of trust building, the crew always has to trust me because I am responsible for their safety. I am responsible for making sure that they have the information they need to do their jobs. And as a leader, you have to be able to lead by example. And, you know, you can't ask a person to move a couch five times because that fifth time they're going to stop believing you. They're mm -hmm. going to stop trusting you. And that's going to cut into your efficiency. So when you interact with them, you just have to be very specific. You have to know what you want. And sometimes you may just say, hey, I just need a couple minutes to figure this out, rather than making them jump through hoops for no reason. Let's take five minutes. Let's figure this out together. What's the best solution? And then that builds trust because they know that if they need that time, you're going to give them that time. Yeah, thank you for that. I think sometimes we talk about culture shift and what's been happening in film, not only through the representation piece of it in front of the camera, but we're also talking about the industry and the culture itself. And there's a real culture shift around the yellers and the screamers aren't being celebrated in the same way as a leadership style. What you're talking about around these inclusive practices often is what we're having conversations around. Even AD saying that, you know, if that's part of their interview, to be the yeller and the screamer, that they're choosing not to work on certain projects, but also recognizing that we've been raised up in an industry where there is the hierarchy, that there can be kind of the sink or swim curse of knowledge. We're not really trained. We're just, you know, trained to say yes, and then you figure it out. Do you take the time to train when you're working and building your team? What are those personalities that you're looking for so that you know that you can do your job as a first AD, but there's a role for everybody on your team as well. And so how do you build your team? First, you know, I'd start with the open door policy. Once we have our team together, I tell them, my door is always open. I'm here to share information. If you have a question, don't be afraid to ask. That's where you get into trouble. When I have my schedule and I'm working on it, I put it on a big board outside my office. People are welcome to come and take a look at it as they're planning their days. So having that open line of dialogue, that communication with them, taking time to meet with each of the individual department heads to go over any problems or issues that they want to address or bring to the forefront. And then within my AD department itself, it's really empowering people to do their job. And yeah. it's also about not abusing power. Yeah. You know, because it's very easy for someone in my position to abuse their power. And that doesn't necessarily build respect or trust with the crew if the decisions that are made are based on what's best for me or what makes me feel powerful. You're actually more powerful when you give your power away. 
than when you are the one that's standing there beating your chest that, hey, look at me. It's never about it's never about me. It's always about the bigger picture of what we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, I appreciate talking about power and that kind of power over is one way. But I think that when we talk about inclusive leadership practices, and I do, I see you as an inclusive leader, is that there's that power within so that we have to know ourselves and be able to lead authentically, but also that power to and power with. And so that power with and that collective. And so it goes even back to when we talk about identity and community and building your team and the community, thinking about the crew as that community. And that power too, that power to come together and to collaborate. And, you know, even I talk about empowerment a lot as we talk about leading crews or teams of people. So I guess I'm curious about your projects too, in the way that do you pick them? Do they pick you? Is there a combo? There's definitely a combo there. Being in the guild, working as an assistant director as long as I have, I've established relationships with a number of people who, you know, fortunately for me, I'm their first call if they're going to do a project. And I always try and keep those people on my radar because, you know, there's economy of scale. When you've worked with somebody before, there's a shorthand. There's an efficiency there. You understand their strengths, their weaknesses going in, and you understand how it is you can support them. A lot of times the project will pick me. I, there have been many a times, I'll use the help as an example. It was an Afrocentric story with African-American actors, and they wanted an African-American AD on it. And, you know, fortunately for me, I went in and I interviewed and I got the job. Obviously, it was a very rewarding project. It was nominated for Academy Best Picture, but that was a case of a project picking me other projects, you know, I love to work. Being a, an assistant director is a craft and it's a skill. And it, just like any other craft or skill, it's something that has to be exercised. You know, and the more you exercise that craft and that skill, the better you become, you know, in, in that regard. When you get the script, do you fall in love with it? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. There are some screenplays that I can read and know by page 30 that this is a motion picture I want to do. There are some that I have to read several times to try and find out what's the essence of the story, What, not necessarily what's in it for me, but at the same time, there is something that I want to be, there's some value that I want to be able to gain. And the value is not in the money. The value is either in the experience or the opportunity as opposed to, you know, I'm just doing this for the money. No, I want to learn something new. You know, I went through the transition in film where we shot on film, and then we went into the world of digital. And now there's new technologies coming out that in order for me to stay relevant as an assistant director, I have to continue to hone my skills and learn new technologies for me to stay employable and at the top of my game. I may pick a project strictly because of the technology that's going to be used or maybe the director of photography that's going to be shooting it. I, you know, whatever gives me the opportunity to continue to learn my craft. Yeah, I love that. So it's always evolving. I think that's often when I'm talking with storytellers and filmmakers is that it's never the same. Now, different people, different circumstances, different times of year, different weather, everything is you know, something you have to consider 
on whatever project you go to, and it's never the same. No, it's amazing. And what I think often, you know, I ask filmmakers, you know, what got you into it, but I also ask what makes you stay? I think what makes me stay, again, for me, I love learning. Mm -hmm. I love having the opportunity to interact with new people, learn new technologies. I'm 30 years into my career, and now there are new people that are coming into the -hmm. business and having the opportunity to interact with them. They live in a much different world than I did. They grew up in much different worlds than I do than I did. So being able to interact with someone, say, my son's age, 26, who's social experience is completely different from mine, it helps keep me young, you know, because I can learn what the new lingo is. I can learn what the hot show is. I can stay culturally relevant and in tune by having these young people on my staff who are new to it and they look to me as a mentor, but at the same time, they bring a unique perspective to the work. Let's talk about mentorship. Firstly, do you have mentors? One of my closest mentors, a producer by the name of Dan Colserud. Dan, as a matter of fact, did either Are We There Yet or Are We Done Yet in Vancouver when we did those okay. years ago. And Dan worked as an assistant director. He moved up to producing. And he was there for my transition when I moved from a second AD to a first AD. He was one of the first producers that I worked with. And he didn't necessarily hold my hand as I went through the project, but he understood where I was in my process. And he would just give me these little nuggets of information that looking back, they really solidified my approach to being an assistant director from problem solving to communicating. Dan, he's just like a wealth. As a matter of fact, he's someone, he's retired now, but I still reach out to him from time to time just to have conversations with him because he was first AD on the original Top Gun. I believe he worked on the Sissy Spacek movie, Coal Miner's Daughter. So an OG. Yeah, Mm -hmm. no, he's got an amazing filmography himself. So being able to learn from him, one of the other mentors was an assistant director named Randy Carter. Randy worked more on the television side as opposed to the feature side, but at the same time, he worked on pictures like Apocalypse Now, the Blues Brothers, the original Blues Brothers movie. And when you see some of these scenes, you say, how did you guys do that? And do you mentor I, I do. I find that now, and I don't know when it happened. I always used to be the young guy on set. It happens, I'm, though, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, I'm no longer the young guy on set. And looking back now, I realize that it's my responsibility to give back. So I've always enjoyed doing career days because I'm big on exposure. It's important for me to just, if nothing else, expose people to the possibility You know, if, you know, there's somebody who just likes doing their friend's hair, maybe they don't realize that there is a very well-paying career opportunity for them as a hairstylist in television and feature film. So for me, it's really about exposing younger people to the opportunities that are out there and letting them know that there are more choices in life than doctor, lawyer, you know, whatever the case may be, that you can make a good living as a filmmaker. 
And are you doing that outreach as well within kind of African-American communities? And even with the culture shift, I'm seeing that there are more committees happening within our unions and guilds as well in film. And so are people asking you to mentor and to talk about your experience as a, an African-American man in our industry? Absolutely. And that happens both from within the guild as younger guild members come in and the younger people can look at my resume and go, wow, what a body of work this person has put together. I would call you a legendary AD. (laughs) You're very funny. I appreciate that. So I mentor a lot of young ADs coming up. And there's a number of outreach programs. There's one in particular. It's called the OA JET program. That's the Oakwood Arts. It's in Richmond, Virginia. And JET stands for Job Education Training. There's a person on their board who reached out to me and said, hey, will you come in and mentor some of our young African-American students who are interested in being filmmakers and talk to them about what you do? And it's very rewarding to be able to give back to those students just to expose them again to the opportunity of being a filmmaker. Yeah, I think it is really important. And I am seeing that shift in Canada as well where in British Columbia, developing creative pathways, which is an opportunity for film folks to mentor Black, Indigenous, and racialized people, emerging artists who want to come into film, and so creating these pathways and, you know, partnering with Warner Brothers to do that. Also part of Black Women Film Canada, and so really seeing now where there's a Black screen office here as well, and both of these are national organizations where our community may be spread out and quite diverse across Canada, but we're starting to come together. And more and more in my training sessions, I'm seeing more Black filmmakers and storytellers here in Canada. So I'm hoping that with you sharing some of your journey as well, that folks get to see themselves and know that reaching that status where you can work on these amazing projects with people who get to tell those stories too, because you have had that opportunity. You talked about the help but also working with Ryan Coogler, who's a a young person who's making his way. And even that relationship, I think, that you two have of a friendship, but there was a trust that needed to be there in, in the work that you do. And so I'm sure that with not only this director, but others that you're building a deep trust and friendship with storytellers so that they get to tell the stories that they want to. Absolutely. Ryan, I've worked with him twice. We worked on Creed. We worked on Wakanda Forever. A phenomenal filmmaker, a phenomenal human being, father. He grew up in Oakland, California. And Oakland has such a rich cultural history, particularly within the black community. The Black Panthers were founded there. And, you know, regardless of what people think about the Black Panthers, their original goal was community support. You know, whatever, you know, Breakfast that morphed programs into. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And that had such a significant impact on someone like Ryan growing up in that community. So when I work with him, I'm always amazed by just how culturally sensitive he is about certain things. As an example, on Wakanda Forever, I believe we had 
three different cultural advisors because Ryan wanted to make sure that the Talakanil slash Mayans were being portrayed correctly and that we weren't stepping on any sacred sort of things that we shouldn't cross on and that we weren't misrepresenting their culture. The same thing with the African tribes. We had, you know, two language advisors there to make sure that the language was being used correctly. And it's, I'm amazed at Ryan's brilliance at such a young age. I'm fascinated by him. I can sit and talk to Ryan all the time because he brings so much to the table and from a very unique perspective. You don't always have a director that is that socially and culturally conscious about certain things. And not every story lends itself to needing to be that way. But Ryan, even in Creed, you know, Tessa Thompson's character played someone who was hearing impaired. That's very significant in Ryan's life and something that he wanted to portray. And he wanted to portray it accurately. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the exciting part, I think, about when we start to talk about representation and inclusion in the storytelling is, again, in the conversations and in, you know, I'm being invited into the writers' rooms. I'm talking with production designers who are conscious about not creating just another microaggression. And so that we're having these deeper conversations around how do we do this work in a good way? Because there is this really rich opportunity to, I find, in the culture shift to tell more culturally sensitive stories that we haven't been able to tell in time. So yeah, the culture shift piece of it is exciting to me and to be able to do that in a good way. I'm curious, you say 30 years. Do I say the R word in retirement? Not yet. Not yet. I'm not ready to go yet. I still really love what I do. I'm finding myself as an assistant director to, with 30 years experience, to continue to advance. And I'm constantly not only learning things within being an assistant director, but on some of the projects I work, I also get a co-producer or associate producer Mm -hmm. credit. And that allows me to step not necessarily on the other side of the line, you know, below the line, above the line, but it certainly allows me to take part in conversations that Typically, ADs don't necessarily get to take part in. I get to sit in on financial meetings, budgetary meetings, and in a different aspect than I would as an assistant director. And that just kind of gives me more tools to work with because I understand our budgetary restrictions on a different level. And I'm continuing to enjoy learning those things. Again, I didn't realize before how significantly they could impact the work that I do. A lot of times when you're coming up as an assistant director, you're just kind of handed certain parameters and you work within those parameters. But when you have as much experience as I do and you're invited into those conversations, you can learn from them and you can contribute to them. Any last words of wisdom that you have for folks who are storytellers who want to be storytellers and that are taking a similar path in the sense of emerging ADs, people that are looking at what they could do in film and doing the work that you do as an AD. Any wisdoms? 
When people ask me about inroads into the business, regardless of where they're coming from or where they want to go, I always tell them, you know, if you're an actor, you have to act. If you're a writer, you have to write. The inroads and barriers to getting into the business and being able to tell stories today are much simpler than when I got in. The barriers back then were the cost of film, the ability to go and rent a camera or buy a camera, whatever the case may be. Today, you can shoot a film on your iPhone. Mm -hmm. You can edit on your computer. And even if it's just something, a backyard production, so to speak, with your friends or in a community group or in a church group or whatever the case may be, it's a skill and it's a craft. And the more that you exercise it, the more that you're going to learn. You know, directors will learn just as much in the edit bay as they will on the shooting floor because when they get in the edit bay, they're there essentially by themselves other than the editor trying to construct their story and they will learn what shots they got that worked. They'll learn what shots they got that didn't work. They will be able to hone their craft, refine their technique. Actors, again, whether it's in a community theater, whether it's a play, commercial, whatever the case may be, again, it's a skill that has to be exercised, a muscle that has to be flexed in order to stay strong because you never really know when that opportunity is going to come. And when the opportunity does come, you need to be prepared. You know, I didn't start as an AD working on $100 million projects, but when I got the call to do the $100 million project, I was ready because that's what I had been building and preparing myself for. Even if I was working on $8 million movies, $20 million movies, I knew that progression was going to happen at a certain point. So you're always preparing yourself for your next step. Oh, I appreciate that. Don, thanks so much for coming in and spending time. You're welcome. I appreciate this. That was a conversation with Assistant Director Donald L. Sparks. If you want to learn more about Don's work or where you can find him, check out our show notes for links. On the next episode of Narrative Shift, we're joined by Lorelai Williams and Julia Taff, a choreography duo whose work aims to commemorate the lives of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. When Lorelai and Julia work together, their art takes flight. Literally. Oh my gosh, it was definitely a lot of work. We designed new rigging systems. This is totally different. This is the first time we needed a stage manager, production manager, and I don't even know all the other managers. Lifting the butterflies into the air, that required so much. Thanks for listening to Narrative Shift. This series is produced by me, the Elevate team, and Max Collins. I'm your host, Natasha Tony. Be well. And we'll see you next time.